The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Colorado Judicial Department. The Colorado Judicial Department assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. Information provided in this podcast should not be considered to be legal advice and is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness or accuracy. Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. I think what is underway in the country right now it, it is, is critical, and it was critical long before COVID, and it was critical long before, I think, the more substantive calls for race equity that we're seeing in the in this moment of time. And that has been that we we really need to move our systems to be thinking much more differently about communities and family well-being. Beyond the Collab Babel, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collab Babel, keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collab Babel, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collab Babel, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead. The stars of today's podcast are Frank Alexander, Managing Director, Casey Family Programs, Judicial and National Engagement, and former Director of the Boulder County Department of Housing and Human Services, and Juan Carlos Guzman Baez, Senior Director of Casey Family Programs, Judicial and National Engagement. Today, we'll be talking about court leadership in the context of prevention, and we'll be doing this through a lens of access to justice. I am your Collabo Babble host, Bill Delisio, the Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. Well, good morning, Frank. Good morning, Juan Carlos. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having us. Yeah, morning, Bill. Great to see you and uh, appreciate you having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have both of you. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a bio background and then anything I might leave out that you guys want to fill in, you feel free to, but I want to give the audience a little idea of who both of you are. Now, Frank, you, you hail from Colorado, so people might know you on this podcast, but for those that aren't familiar with you, I just want to let them know that in July 2020, you joined the nationwide team of experts at Casey Family Programs, working to support a broad range of partners as well as children, families, and communities to safely reduce the need for foster care and build communities of hope across the nation. And as the Managing Director of Judicial and National Engagements, um, you'll be working with courts and the federal government, the executive branch of the federal government, to oversee you know, and improve child welfare policy and funding. And so for those folks that are listening and aren't familiar with Frank, he was the Director of Boulder County Department of, Hum- of Housing and Human Services um, since January of 2009, um, and he had worked with the Boulder County Housing Authority since May of 2004. Um, in that role, he had a staff of over 500 individuals, an operating budget of over $130 million, and an asset base of over $260 million. And Frank really spent a lot of time working on housing as a major, major foundation of serving the families that, that we all see in the courts Juan Carlos is the Senior Director of Casey Family Program's Judicial and National Engagement Team. And prior to joining Casey, Juan Carlos worked for the three branch of government, the third branch of government in Puerto Rico. He spent most of his career working for the judicial branch as a judicial clerk, training coordinator for the Judicial Academy of Puerto Rico, special assistant to the administrative director of the courts, 
And finally, as the Judicial Programs Director of the Office of Court Administration. During his time as the Judicial Branch Director, he oversaw several Access to Justice initiatives and served as the Executive Director of the Puerto Rico Access to Justice Commission. Juan Carlos completed his bachelor's degree in psychology and Juris Doctorate at University of Puerto Rico. And and I think one thing that's interesting, Frank, you are not a lawyer, you are not an attorney, but you're working on judicial engagements. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. But I think that adds a little bit of diversity, inclusivity, and, 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 and so forth to this work. So I, I hope we get into that a little bit today. So welcome again. Thank you for your time this Friday morning. And before we get into any more, the first question I like to always ask the guests is, what does Beyond the Collabo Babble mean to you? So, Frank, why don't you start us off and let us know, what does that mean to you? Well, I think it's a, it's a great title for a podcast, Bill, so I'm, I'm sure you are the creator of it. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a humorous and thought-provoking way to question the way that, that we work. And I think... Um, I think what you're getting at with the title, which is exactly what we need to do, is is beginning to talk together uh, is, a, is a necessary uh, step to collaboration, but it, it isn't collaboration. And if if collaboration just means more and more talking, it turns into babble. And, and if you actually use the talking to start to move into shared strategies, shared visions, shared purpose, and, and actually working together on things that are critical to the partners that are around the table, then you're actually moving into collaboration. And uh, I think you and I have both been part of both teams of Collabble Babble as well as collaboration. And there's a substantive difference between the two. So that's what, that's, that's what the name did for me in terms of thinking about it before the podcast. All right. Well, I've, I've recorded about 40 of these or so, and I've never heard anybody refer to the team of Collabo Babble, but I like that. And there's either a team of collaboration or a team of Collabo Babble. Um, Juan, Juan Carlos, how about you? What, what do you think of, what does it mean to you beyond the Collabo Babble? Well, for me, um, I have to say that when I heard the, the term, the first thing that came to mind was uh, promoting collaboration beyond our immediate circle or group of colleagues. Um, I think it's an, an, an invitation to expand partnerships, to think about uh, multi-sectoral, uh, multi-sectoral collaboration, um, learning from different disciplines and professionals. And, and I think it's, it is also an invitation to appreciate how can we come together uh, from these different sectors to promote positive change. Great. Well, thank you both. Now, um, I've given a little background to the audience on you know what you your backgrounds are, but I also just want you to tell me, and I'll start with you, Frank, like, what's your story of uh, joining the Casey Family Programs Judicial and National Engagement Team? And then Juan Carlos, I'll ask you the same question, just to give the honest little background of how you ended up in this very unique kind of role, I believe, that Casey Family Programs started maybe five to seven years ago. Yeah, so, um, well, it's a great question. And I think, you know, the I think what is underway in the country right now it, it is is critical, and it was critical long before COVID, and it was critical long before I think the more substantive calls for race equity that we're seeing in the in this moment of time, and, and that has been that we 
we really need to move our systems to be thinking much more differently about communities and family well-being, um, healthy, thriving families, and and really how we have so institutionalized downstream responses to things. And you know, the Children's Bureau uh, has been leading really a reframe around primary prevention and focus um, that child welfare has has been lacking for, for far too long. Um, and so the I became involved with Casey Family Programs more than 12 years ago. Um, quick little start around that was uh, when, I, when I merged housing and human services in Boulder County, we were the first community in the country to do such a thing. Um, it gave us the opportunity to redefine child welfare and use sort of a holistic social determinants of health approach to to families and community development. And Casey came out and did a big uh, assessment and support of our work in the first few months to help us kind of get off on the right foot. And ever since then, I've been involved in a lot of peer-to-peer sharing with them, uh, TA around the country. Um, And we just saw this moment right now where we could move beyond sort of separate judicial engagement, separate prevention efforts, separate national partner efforts into really thinking about how do we build the kind of uh, collaborations, the kind of partnerships across the country that will really uh, leapfrog us um, into a different way of thinking about um, our communities and the work that we've done and really promoting, I think, what all of us have been striving for together um, and, and focusing on breaking down those barriers. So that's what really formed, you know, this is a new structure in Casey. Judicial and national engagement didn't exist prior to this. And and we're in process of kind of launching it and rethinking things differently and excited about what's opening up as a result of it. And it's kind of building on all the momentum that's been happening around the country, especially the last couple of years. So Frank, just so I understand, there wasn't a judicial engagement team that Casey started, but there was a very intentional, deliberate decision made in the past six months or so to to, to look at it more differently. And what I kind of took from it, your your path was, instead of it being siloed, separate, separate, a separate unit that would work or team that would work with the courts and, and the legal profession, uh, you really like to jump into this role because it, it involved bringing all the partners together and really looking at a, and, and you said downstream, but the upstream approach, like, and, and I think throughout this conversation, we'll, we'll get more into that. Maybe some of our listeners aren't as familiar with that phrase. We can talk a little bit more about it, but you saw this as an opportunity to really shift the paradigm that we've been working in throughout your career, my career, Juan Carlos's career. That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. And there's so many great ways that we can crystallize that and that we've talked about that can be pulled together. And, and I think we, we have, we have a tacit acknowledgement in that, that if we don't work in the court system and with the judicial branch and with the executive branch agencies and with the legislature around prevention and what it's going to take together, um, we'll miss, we'll miss the opportunity. Right. So I think it's, it's really acknowledging what needs to happen in, in communities to promote family and child well-being, uh, sort of holistic community responses that will promote us reducing the need for our, our sort of high cost, deeper end institutions to continually try to respond to crisis on the, on the back end of its occurrence instead of uh, just moving what we know a little bit farther upstream. Great. All right. Well, Juan Carlos, I know you and I began 
met each other via the, 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 the internet earlier this year uh, when we were both on quarantine. I think our, our colleague Alicia Davis kind of connected us around some projects, the Dependency and Neglect Systems Reform Project here in Colorado in particular. And, and the audience heard that you came from the Puerto Rico courts. And I'm really curious to hear about your journey on your way to Casey Family Programs and, and, and sort of um, how, 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 that, how that all evolved for you. So go ahead and share that with our, with our, uh, our audience. Yeah, thanks. Um, like you mentioned before, coming to Casey, I had the opportunity to work as a public interest attorney for several years in Puerto Rico, working for different uh, agencies and offices. Uh, for the government of Puerto Rico, but I spent most of my career at the judicial branch, which was certainly a privilege. I always say that the judicial branch was my home, and I think it, it still is. Um, but especially focusing, for me, it was important to focus on uh, working with uh, marginalized communities, uh, disadvantaged communities, and 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 people that really need us to address access to justice barriers in order for them to succeed and to thrive, right? So um, before before joining Casey, I was working as the Judicial Programs Director in Puerto Rico. Uh, the Judicial Programs Office uh, at the Office of Courts Administration basically uh, oversees several access to justice initiatives that um, try to uh, address different needs uh, of different vulnerable populations, such as domestic violence victims, mental health patients, um, children that have been uh, abused or neglected, um, drug abuse uh, participants in drug courts, and different, different, different groups that um, face uh, difficulties trying to access the justice system. Through that work, I was able to uh, connect and get involved with the Court Improvement Program in Puerto Rico, which was an incredible and very enlightening ex experience and opportunity for me. Uh, through that work and through the contact with, with that program and working directly with the CIP coordinator and the staff of the CIP, I was able to sort of like get involved in this community of practice. And that's how I, get, I got in contact with, with Casey Family Programs. The, the first time that I had the opportunity to sort of like engage with this organization was through a convening uh, uh, last year in 2019 it was an incredible experience i think that casey has been very effective bringing leaders across the nation across the country uh, putting people together and and providing tools materials and learning opportunities and and spaces for people to share um best practices to share uh, lessons learned uh, and that's how I came in contact with Casey Family Programs, and that's how I saw this opportunity to come and, and do more national work uh, after several years working in a, in a particular jurisdiction. All right. 
So I, I think the audience can just tell we have a very, like just a great amount of experience here in both of your backgrounds. And we're not necessarily just focusing on child welfare, but we, we, we definitely, in the roles that both of you hold, that's a very big focus. But I think today's conversation, especially with the housing approach that Frank talks about and all the access to justice work that Juan Carlos has done, we are really talking about what do we do upstream and in other areas. And as, as if we think about the juvenile court as downstream and and maybe I might mess this little story up, but maybe one of you can help me. But I think it's a it's a pretty common type of story they use in public health where, you know, if you, you live in a town next to the river and bodies keep showing up and people are drowning and people are, are need to be saved from the river. And so you 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 get a bunch of volunteers in your town and, and you get out and you start swimming into the water and pulling people out and then you you get some boats and then you build a hospital to help everybody and you just keep building this infrastructure to save these people that are coming down the river and showing up in your in your town and nobody stops to say like what's going on up the river like maybe we should like go up the river and figure out how we can help these people before they end up in the river drowning and 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 losing potentially losing their lives and i think that's a where juvenile court sometimes is is People have been through many different court doors, many different Department of Human Service doors. They have had maybe access to some services, maybe the services that didn't meet their needs or maybe not to the level of intensity that they needed. And so little by little over time, they they find their way into this like Department of Human Services monitoring supervision. And eventually if it's unsafe for the children or if something is... Uh, hopefully high risk, but maybe not even always in high risk, lots of cases involving neglect, they end up in our, in our juvenile court. And, and today that's what we want to talk about. But let's not forget, you might see them in your domestic violence county court docket. You might be seeing them in the mental health docket, the probate docket. They may just be coming to your courthouse or your self-help center to ask for some information on how to maintain their residence and not get kicked out of their home or their, or their apartment. And so courts are always seeing these sort of points in time where maybe we can intervene or refer somebody to the appropriate service, the, the upstream legal service that prevents them from eventually losing their house and being homeless and ending up in juvenile court. And so that's just where I wanted to kind of get the audience head today. We're, we're talking broadly and we'll be talking somewhat specifically to child welfare, but just open your mind to the possibility if you're in a domestic relations court and you see a family that has some stuff going on, do they really need to be monitored and supervised by the Department of Human Services or do they need some other family resource that maybe doesn't exist today? And how do we partner to build that system and invest more money upstream? And how do we start to shift that as a, as a judicial branch is what one thing we're going to talk about as a Colorado court system and so on. Now, next thing I just wanted to, to say, or the question is, is, to Frank, you know, why, Frank, can we talk about this? Okay, why court and judicial leadership is important in reshaping child welfare? And, and what does reform need to look like through a prevention lens? And, and the one thing, and I'm sure you've heard it, and I've heard it, and I've struggled with it myself since Families First, courts have to decide cases. How, how do we, we don't have necessarily enough resources, and especially now in this budget crisis, to really get out of the courtroom and go upstream and, and spend time because right, we've got this case that needs to be decided today. And is that really our role in the three branches of government? And, and are we expanding the purpose of courts? But like, let's talk about that. Why court judicial leadership is important to reshaping child welfare and what does it look like to you and through that prevention lens? 
Well, great intro, Bill, and and, and great question. Uh, you know, I think I think the first thing is is just to kind of highlight that you know um, attorneys and judges have already been an inspiration to many reform efforts before, and so this is not a new ask. It it it, it may be a a a new step forward. But I think it's really, first of all, important for everyone in the court, um, both in Colorado and across the country, to really be thinking about how we've already taken steps forward and how we build on those steps and learn from each other and be a bit bolder in terms of what the moment now provides us to. Because I would actually argue that in a time like this, where there's more dislocation and disruption and crisis, you actually do not have the option to wait for all of these things hitting your door to, to continue to operate in the same way that we have before. If there's anything that we learn from system reform, it's that waiting until the system is overloaded and isn't in crisis to do transformation work is probably one of the most egregious errors that we can make as public servants. It's our responsibility to be thinking about that on the front end. And I think leaders in the court system and judges have a unique voice. Uh, my personal path over the last 30 years has involved innumerable inspirational moments with advocate attorneys, uh, parent counsel, uh, judges who've led reform. And I think we have the building blocks of that. You can see it in increments that we've taken with collaborative management programs, drug courts, criminal justice reform, juvenile justice reform, efforts to deinstitutionalize youth, and even things as concrete. I think, I, I think thinking broadly across the court system, uh, as you just kind of introed us to, and then applying it within uh, the family court system is really a very substantively tactical way to, to do some concrete work moving forward. So, you know, one, I think, high level example of that is most of our county sheriffs across Colorado and our, their district attorneys uh, and their judicial officers have been dealing with um, an overwhelming population in county-based jail, specifically of individuals with mental health issues and uh, substance use issues that often do not require incarceration at the rates that we have been um, applying that as a strategy. And that's led to efforts around, you know, applying sequential intercept modeling, around building community-based diversion programs, right, co-responder models, uh, alliances with uh, providers of housing, homeless service providers, human service providers to really work more uh, concretely around how to divert sort of law enforcement as the solution to community-based issues uh, that then impact the jail. And I think in some ways that's easier for the court system to see because um, law enforcement is managing the county jail, where, whereas in child welfare, that population does become somewhat invisible to the judicial branch because those kids are then institutionalized in, in other settings that are not paid for, managed specifically by the court, but there are no less uh, traumatizing. They're no less uh, costly. They're no less sort of disruptive to the community and they're no less downstream than uh, a county jail would be or a state department of corrections is. And I think um, 
to me, that gives us the, the place where it's, I think, critical and easy for judges and court leaders to step into a, a, a place of we already know these things are characteristically happening for everyone touching our court system. What, what would it look like? What would it be like? How do we move to a place where the conditions in our communities are actually where justice is occurring, where healing is occurring, where safety is occurring, and we're not expecting the court only to provide justice or the child welfare system only to provide safety, um, because that, that is an illusion uh, that I think we um, we have perpetuated for far too long. And I think we can see the, the costs of that um, sort of every day. And, and I think we have really um, huge opportunities to work together. And, and it's even more apparent now. It's been apparent for years, but I think the, this window of, of COVID um, and uh, sort of heightened awareness around disparity issues in our systems gives us a window to, to really work together differently and, and kind of move from the, from the babble to the, to the action, uh, to the, uh, to the collaboration in a way that's really, um, going to work. I, I, I'm very, very confident in our ability to do it. Yeah. So I was, as you were speaking, I was just thinking this morning, I saw, um, there's some recommendations coming out from the Office of Behavioral Health here in Colorado to kind of change the way that the funding streams go and the oversight of those programs are. I think it's something like it's spread across 80 different programs. And so we've got certain mental health diversion programs that the courts manage and that OBH manages as an example. They have different kind of criteria to get into that program. Different different like populations are going to be served, but sometimes it's like a very small needle to thread. So like hopefully somebody connects you to this program that has a small little narrow qualification to get into it. And so we've got clients who are trying to get, let's just take the best case scenario. They're trying to deal with whatever challenges they're facing and then they bump into us and they can't find the right door. All of them are locked or closed or you don't qualify for this or we only offer this array of services. And what you're saying is courts really have to be part of that process of saying, what do you see? Who are you seeing in front of you? What are their needs? Help us design this service array, for lack of a better. How can the community just identify somebody with a mental health need and send them to one place that they could get that service as opposed to, you got to go to housing, then you got to go down the street and you got to go here, right? Like we just, we are fighting an upstream battle <laughs> if we're trying to solve this problem at the court level. Is that, is that fair to say? Exactly. And I think, as you'll hear Juan Carlos talk about, with, with really a, a different frame around access to justice and thinking more broadly across the touch points in the court system. And I think you highlighted a few. And there's one coming right before us in the next quarter. So estimates, depending on who you talk to, 19 to 23 million households are going to be at risk of experiencing uh, an eviction uh, because of lack of income. And we all are well aware of the vulnerability that housing instability will provide uh, to our communities and what it will mean. And the likelihood that should that occur at that rate without adequate representation, without access to the funding streams that are currently being underutilized around rent assistance, those families and individuals will end up touching varying other parts, other doors inside the court, juvenile, juvenile court, dependency uh, and neglect court, and we will, we will end up um, in the place where we are removing 
children and families months down the road that could have, but with support and some housing stability and eviction prevention and adequate counsel around eviction prevention, basic rent assistance, basic support, and, and a frame around that at the front end, um, now could have prevented those things that will that will occur six, six months uh, later. So I think that's just one very specific way that we can think about these things very differently. And I find myself that, that when a, a judge or a court officer will step into a space of let's really reduce truancy, let's, let's really reduce uh, dependency and neglect hearings, that, let, that is a goal that we should have. Let's really reduce the number of kids we send to detention. Let's really reduce unnecessary placement in, in the correctional system, right, in the county jail uh, by working together in a different way. And I, as a judge, and I, as a court partner, I, as a probation officer, believe in this because, frankly, our systems do not have the capacity to, to manage and overwhelm downstream. And, and what we see, we can even see this in courts across the United States right now. There are, there are families whose children were temporarily removed without question, many of them because of the effects of, of poverty uh, and income insecurity, who are now languishing in uh, a COVID, uh, a, a COVID no person's land uh, because the courts do not have the capacity to process the backlog uh, of hearings around those family court issues. And as a result, we sort of, we sort of perpetuated a traumatic experience that um, we need to use as a stepping stone and a lesson moving forward about why healthy communities and strong communities promote strong families and how families and parents with support um, can thrive and their children can be with them. And there's no substitution for a family. There's no institution that can provide what a loving, caring family member can provide to, to a family and what that then means for the, the community around that family and the broader community as a whole. Um, and I really think it's, it's those, there's so many ways that you can pull that thread from start to finish. And I know people get stuck in terms of understanding whose role, whose role is what, but I, but I think we have demonstrable evidence when that's happened, what it means, not just for the court system, but what it means for the broader community around them and how it activates uh, the responses that are necessary in the community when they know that their uh, judicial leaders, their court leaders are behind uh, uh, an approach that is really family strengthening and not, not needing to utilize sort of a, a more punitive approach that we, that we often experience in, in, in family court that um, becomes necessary when we let things spiral out of control into crisis. And, and would be much less necessary uh, if we were leading together, as you were kind of mentioning, further up the stream, understanding what's causing what's causing this to occur at such a broad scale. Wow. 19 to 23 million is what some people are projecting is the number of people who can potentially be homeless in the next quarter. I think that's an important number to focus on. And, and that's sort of a root cause issue, right? A lot of these folks, I think what you were alluding to, won't show up, would, would for no other reason be showing up on our radar, but for this fact that they are uh, income unstable and um, losing their housing. And so I think that's a good 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of set it there. Maybe we'll get back to it. But the root cause issue or the structural issue that the court sometimes doesn't have the ability to really address. So they're dealing with, they can see that they're homeless. They can order them to get stable housing. But yet that's sort of like just an order. The order requires income, requires money, requires assistance. And so courts are in this difficult, oftentimes position of being able to very easily or very well identify some of these root cause issues, but not being able to address them through any of their orders or any of their, their options. So I think access to justice. And, and I want to jump to Juan Carlos because you're, you're right. When Juan Carlos talked about access to justice the first time I talked to him, I thought, oh, I haven't thought of it quite that way either. I haven't thought of it as prevention. And I also, um, I think we've talked about this a little bit, but it's a it's a nice it's a nice slogan, it's a nice phrase. But who comes to court for justice? I mean, um, you know, is it is is that really where people go? Like, do they show up on the weekends at the courthouse for justice, or is it is it something else? Is is it something? What does it really mean? And, and I, th- I thought Juan Carlos has a great a great way of describing it. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about just your viewpoint on access to justice as prevention, Juan Carlos? Yeah, I uh, thank you, Bill. I think it, that's such an important question, especially now um, considering what this country is going through uh, because COVID, because of all the r- uh, racial injustice conversations that we are seeing, and and certainly, uh, for example, what Frank just mentioned about the housing crisis that we are just witnessing right now. Um, I believe that if we can address the principal access to justice barriers that families and communities face on a daily basis, we can prevent uh, families and children coming into the system, uh, coming into the child welfare system. Um, and when we talk about the principal access to justice barriers, uh, first of all, and I think that we can all agree about the importance of high quality legal representation in the first place. The lack of access to legal aid in this country is something that we need to certainly address. And, and, we've, and I think that we've talked about the importance of high quality legal representation in the dependency court area, but we need to talk about definitely in our community of practice about the importance of high quality legal representation in the pre-petition phase of, of, of these processes and in the pre-petition area that families and communities are, are facing in, all, in, all, in case types other than dependency. For example, civil legal aid, as Frank was mentioning, housing issues, employment issues, domestic relations, mental health issues, substance abuse, what if we can provide better access to legal representation in those areas? Certainly, that is a opportunity, a tool that we can use to prevent families and children coming into the system. In second place, we need to address the lack of physical access to decision makers and to the justice institutions. Uh, When we think about rural areas, rural communities, uh, people that struggle with public transportation that cannot get to our courthouse, that cannot get, that cannot 
physically uh, get to to our justice institutions. That's that's a huge issue, and sometimes we don't think about that. I think that the pandemic has shown us that technology now plays a huge role connecting families and communities with decision makers and with the judicial branch. We need to take advantage of this new opportunity to improve those tools, to provide those opportunities to families to actually connect with our judicial branch, to connect with uh, with our courts. And, um, I, and I think that certainly sometimes crisis uh, gives us um, opportunities. And I think that we are witnessing an opportunity right now to take advantage of what the pandemic is showing us and how we can use innovative uh, solutions to connect communities with our judicial branches. The other thing I, I, I think that we need to address is the lack of legal awareness and understanding of the legal system. I think that we have a responsibility to provide information to our communities about their rights, their responsibilities, um, the services that are out there uh, for them. But at the same time, I think that we need to listen to the community. They know what they need. And we need to allow the community to create, to co-create with us solutions. We should not be imposing solutions to them because they really know what they need. And I think that community engagement um, is crucial. And sometimes I think that maybe we don't talk about that too much from the judicial uh, side of, of the conversation. And I think that we need to. I, need, I think that we need to create those spaces when we can sit down with the community and listen and allow them to uh, bring solutions, to design solutions, and at the same time provide the tools and the information to community leaders to and partner with them to create uh, uh, solutions for, for families and communities. Um, and, and the other thing that I, that, that I think is crucial right now and, and at the moment the country is engaging in this conversation is addressing structural racism. It's crucial that we look at racism as a barrier to access to justice. And I think that the judicial branch needs to look at how they gather information, how we gather data, we need to have those conversations. We need to disaggregate that data. We need to look at policies, rules, procedures, practices, and understand how those policies and procedures are disproportionately impacting minority communities. Until we do that, until we need to do that in order to understand how we are treating these communities and how and all the the difficulties that they face when 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 they come to justice to to the justice institutions. In these conversations, and going back to Frank's uh, point, judicial leadership is crucial, and we need to know and we need to understand that as leaders, we need to promote these conversations. We need to bring people to the table and have these conversations. Sometimes these conversations are not easy to have, but we need to. 
And I think that we do, we have a responsibility as a judicial branch to promote and advance these conversations. It's, it's okay. And we need to rethink the way that we do things. It's, it's okay to sit down with a community and listen. It's okay to receive information and opinions. It's, it's okay. And I think that the judicial branch is in a very, um, privileged position to promote those conversations and to advance, uh, strategies that we, that we uh, will be able to tackle access to justice barriers. You know, Juan Carlos, there's so much good stuff in there. And there's a few areas I'd like to unpack with you. And, and something else that's happened this, this week in the state of Utah. And I don't know if you've heard about this, but their Supreme Court has really made some sweeping changes to the regulation of law and the delivery of legal services to allow non-attorneys to, as I, as I understand it, I, I have to look more deeply into it, but non-attorneys can be partners in law firms. Tech companies can get more, more um, involved in, in, in delivering legal services because this is the future. You've, you've talked about the remote court. Um, I think in 2019, Richard Susskind wrote a book called Remote Courts. I might have the name a little bit wrong, but his thing was, and it's really been resonating with me lately, and you, you, you touched on this, that court is not a place. It's a service. So how do we deliver these services to people? So just, just let's start there, just a little bit about this remote, this remote access, but also as you talk about community conversations and the way that they're changing the regulation, what I, what I see, what I've been thinking about lately from, from especially an equity lens, I mean, it's really shifting power. I mean, when it comes right down to it, are we going to give the power to the communities that are marginalized? Or are we the people who have the power now? And I, I don't know, the three of us or any individual, but as you understand, kind of what I'm trying to say is like, the power has to shift. And, it, and there are people talking about reform is not enough and some systems need to be abolished and rethought uh, because they're producing exactly the type of outcomes that they're designed to produce. So accessing legal services, thinking about it just remotely and shifting the power. When I, when I, when I put that on your plate, what, what comes to your mind? I, I will have to go back to what I mentioned before is just understanding that communities know what they need. And sometimes I feel that we come to the community and tell them what they, what they need instead of listening. Mm -hmm. And because we think we come from a position of power Think and with that we have the knowledge, that we have the expertise, and that we know more than them. And I see that a lot sometimes, and I, and I think it's unfortunate. I'm going to give you a, a concrete example about a project that I was involved in Puerto Rico before joining uh, Casey. Uh, uh, several years ago, we implemented a video conference project for a secluded area in Puerto Rico. We sat down with the community we looked at all the barriers that the community was facing in order to get to the courthouse. Uh, this isolated area is a small island that is part of Puerto Rico, but people in order to get to the courthouse uh, had to take either a boat or a plane to get to the courthouse. You can imagine uh, hmm. the barrier that that means to this uh, community, right? right. Uh, when we think about domestic violence issues, sexual uh, assault, uh, uh, violence. We, we, we heard what was going on. We, under, we sat down with them and we created a theory of change. What do we need to do 
to address the, the problem of this community. And certainly we came up, we need to create a video conference initiative that, are, that is going to allow communities and families to have contact and have access to a decision maker without, without uh, forcing them to get into a boat or to, to take a plane to get to the courthouse. Mm-hmm. With well intention and listening to the community and with an initial investment of $50 and allocating $50, yeah. we were able to start a video conference project that in the first six, seven months, we were able to impact our approximately 100 families that were able to uh, have access to a decision maker without having to get into a boat or a plane. When you think about that, you think about the well-being of the community, you think about how with a very intentional but very simple solution, we are able to solve a very huge problem. It's all about will, but it's also listening to the community and understanding what they need, understanding the problem that they are facing on a daily basis. And if we are willing to listen from a position of power, if we are willing to go to the community and forget that we are the judicial branch and forget that we are part of the justice system and we are willing to sit down with community leaders and we are willing to um, share information to the community and we are able to listen to them and say, do you think this is going to solve your problem? If not, give us options, give us solutions. How can we partner with you? How can we co-create a solution together? That's in my mind, that's the best way that we can address all the problems and challenges that communities are facing. And I just give you that very simple uh, example as a way that how the government and specifically the judicial branch partnering with the community can create incredible solutions. That's a, that's a great concrete example. And, and I really appreciate you sharing that. And one thing that was coming to my mind is that was a very easily sort of visible um, uh, barrier, right? They are not on an island. They need a plane or a, or a boat. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget that like maybe you're in the Denver metro area. And so it doesn't seem that way. I was doing a podcast with a retired justice from New York, Jan Rosa. And she said uh, one thing about COVID that she thought was a silver lining is that we are all kind of experiencing a trauma response, which now we maybe have a better appreciation for the people that appear before us and maybe can understand a little bit better what they're going through and how maybe the, maybe our thoughts are scattered during this time because we've lost control. And maybe because we are in a trauma response, we're not able to hold it together the way that maybe we did prior to. And so... Um, when I when I hear what you're saying, it's it's we have to be conscious about the barriers that don't look that big to us right now because we, especially pre-COVID, we're in control. We've got things going. We've got a really well operational courtroom. The people coming in just need to follow what they're being told to do. But they got housing instability. They got income instability. They're not they're not thinking about we're not the most important person in their lives, even though we think that we should be, they're taking care of their life. And so listening to them, hearing what they need, you spent $50 probably on a couple of cameras hooked up to a laptop so that people could appear for court. 
Yeah. Um, and that's what we're hearing during this time too, right? We've, we've switched to remote and people are seeing some areas of improvement in court hearing attendance, so on. Um, so thanks for that. Thanks for all of that. And, and I, and I just, I really like the way, you know, I've learned this from talking to you over the last few months, the way you were thinking about access justice was a little different than me. I've been thinking a lot about putting resources online and can we have plain language forms and all of these things are very important, but, uh, I like you're, you're saying go upstream, offer legal services, offer other types of counseling to people before there's a problem, find out what's going on, build those connections in the community. And that work takes time. It takes a lot of time and commitment, but it sounds like you can, you can get some quick wins if you do that. Definitely. I, and, and I think, and to be honest, I think that it is crucial that um, we, we change the culture and, and we create will. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience working with um, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and working with the Administrative Director of the Courts is that they were on board. They believe in this. Mm-hmm. And every time we sat down and said, we need to address this, we, there are possibilities here. They were always on board. They were always, they always supported our bold ideas and and they were, and, and they understood that we needed to be bold mm-hmm. in order to to um, create solutions, right? So that's and 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 I go back to Frank's point about judicial leadership. How crucial is judicial leadership? But a judicial leadership that is focused on addressing the needs of the people, uh, a judicial leadership that is focused on listening to the people, and that's okay. I think that's okay. Yeah, I think, that, I think that that's there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to understand that as public servants, because that's what we are at when we when we work for the for the, for the judiciary, we are working for the people, and 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 certainly we have uh, the privilege of having knowledge and experience in certain areas. But once again, the community knows what they need. Mm-hmm. The community knows what they need. So if we can combine those those two knowledges, I think that we can create amazing, amazing solutions. But we just need to have the will and, and a very intentional, a very intentional leadership, understanding that we are human beings, that we want a better community, but at the end of the day, we want a better country. Because this is we need to talk about our country. What what country do we want? What types of communities that we want? We want everybody to, we, we, I think that we need to, to be very uh, clear that we want communities to thrive. We want families to thrive. And we, we need all the voices in this conversation in order to create an agenda towards that direction. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab about. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action, listen, take action, learn, listen, learn, take action, listen, learn, listen, learn, take action.